Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 79 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Rambunctious Raymond. And I'm joined here by my illustrious co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who sold so much paper, he's got environmental agencies breathing down his neck, a man with skeletons in his closet right next to his $2,000 shoes. I am talking about the gorilla of House Street, JJ. Ray, brother, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. And our exquisite guest today is the portfolio manor, manager at Toros Investments, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, five-time Dow and Founders Award winner, including the 2015 award for his paper, on how lumber and gold can be used as signals for managing investment portfolios. Few understand this, of course. I'm talking about Michael A. Gayet. Michael, how's it going? Uh, by the way, that, that intro for JJ, I thought it was Ric Flair for a second. <laughs> I'll, well, hey, I'll take that. <laughs> $2,000 shoes, printing too much money. Like, I don't know. That sounds like... Uh... The kiss stealing, wheeling, dealing, you know, Ric Flair. Oh, he well, was. I, I think JJ was a, uh, you were a WWF fan back in the day, yeah? Well, I used to train with a couple of those guys back in the day, the up in Canada when they used to come to our gym, the uh, British Bulldogs and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, so Michael, I think, I think you and JJ, you, you guys both share a love uh, for the wonderful country of Brazil. I, I'm not sure if they're for the same reasons. Uh, I got a bunch of Brazilian friends, Michael. I'm going to be happy to hear this. Uh, I'm down with that, my friend. All good. All good. All good. Michael, you have a, uh, you're a great follow on Twitter. I suggest all the listeners, you guys don't follow him already. Go follow him. Funny follow. Uh, you got over five, half a million, 580,000 followers, I believe. How have you amassed such a large following? I mean, most of them are haters. So I think I just say a bunch of controversy <laughs> and see what happens. No, I mean, look, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, right? Cause it's like any other endeavor. It just takes time and a lot of effort. I mean, I tweet a lot, I yeah. mean, you know, and, and honestly, a lot of my, yeah, I, I queue up the, the content, which is more kind of serious market analysis. And then, you know, just when I'm in between my calls and between my workday, I'll send out some random tweet that just, you know, subconsciously I need to get it out. So it's a, uh, it's a lot of effort, a lot of time and, Thankfully, my followers, uh, who I have not blocked, uh, can understand <laughs> most of what I'm doing and what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy I enjoy the balance uh, of it. It's a good balance between the analysis and, uh, you know, I like your humor. I don't know if sometimes people misunderstand it. Um, I think it's great. Um, and you engage with the people on Twitter, which is something, you know, people tilt me very easily. <laughs> JJ knows. Um, you seem to have some fun with it, though. It's uh, it's it's enjoyable. I was reading. um. Uh, the people with the Tesla, you know, brought all the fanatics out. Yeah, I love that stuff because it's like, so I entered a, a Spaces discussion the other day talking about Tesla. And, you know, I was one of the speakers that was brought up and everyone's talking about why Tesla's so great. They're, they have the best cars and, you know, they're going to the moon. And so I said, listen, all this stuff doesn't mean a damn thing. When you're trading, when you're investing, there's only one question that matters, right? Has price underreacted or overreacted? That's the only question that matters. I don't care about car reviews. I don't care about how Musk is amazing. All I care about is that. So, and when I said that, of course, then the response is going back to car reviews, 
right? So, so it is kind of interesting <laughs> when you see the social media, when you see sort of a, uh, you, you posing a question, questioning other people's conviction, and they simply come back at you with more of the same regurgitated nonsense that you could have said five months ago when Tesla was much lower. When you see that, I use social media also as sort of a way of getting a sense of the, the mood of the market, right? Because when you have so much conviction in something, you can see it very, very clearly in Twitter. And I would argue that's actually where the best contrarian trades and ideas come from. Nice. I like it. I like it. And, um, you know, when it, when it starts becoming like real religious, it's time to lose faith in something. I, I believe that you said that. I like that a yeah. lot. Yeah. And uh, so reminded to listeners, if you'd like to join JJ, myself and a supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Michael, um, I saw the post and I, I seen a little bit. I didn't watch the whole video, but of your father's lecture that he gave um, in the 1980s. Um, am I right in assuming like that that was where your interest in your start markets came from, your father? Yeah, I mean, so I have kind of a, a, a history of biosmosis. So um, my father worked at Merrill Lynch in the late 1980s and was on the same team as Bob Farrell. Now, mm. that's a name that a lot of people, JJ, you, you probably recognize the yeah. name, a lot of people are not gonna recognize the name Bob Farrell, but if you were to look up Farrell's 10 rules, right, for markets, it's sort of a well-known list of ways of thinking about investing. So he was sort of this um, legendary technician in the late 80s before you could overlay with a click of a button a moving average and various technical indicators. So my father was on his team alongside a gentleman by the name of Steve Chauvin, who was fairly well-known in the 90s as a Lehman technical specialist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my father had a love for markets. He left Merrill. He wrote two books during his time in Merrill, left Merrill. Uh, started his own investment firm. And every single night, as much as I wanted to play with my Game Boy right, at the time, um, my father would talk about markets, whether I liked it or not. Right? So, <laughs> you know, you have the exposure to it, you listen to it, it sticks with you. Right? So I, I, I was never one of those guys that was pushed into the field. It's just something that naturally happened. I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when I was 16 for a specialist uh, firm talking about being a market maker. You nice. recognize Quick and Riley. Oh, yeah. AJ, right. Um, uh, U.S. clearing, right? Um, yep. So, you know, I had that experience, fell in love with the business. And um, a lot of that is just sort of a continuation of a lot of the the enthusiasm my father had. So that video that you referenced on Twitter, that was a uh, class he would give to introducing brokers at Merrill Lynch on the basics of technical analysis. And I found the VHS tape many years ago. I converted it. And it's like it was, you know, my father passed away in 08. So for me, it's kind of sort of a nice memory, obviously, when he was much younger. Um, of the way that he would frame things. And it, it's, it's a reminder to me that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Here's something from the mid eighties that applies, you know, as much today as it did back then. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's what's so amazing. And I, uh, you know, there's some uh, JJ really, you know, JJ took me under his wing, mentored me. And that's something he really uh, talked to me, right? Like, like we, we go back to oh, uh, what the reminiscence, right? JJ and how the, cer- the same psychology, certain things are still the same today. Even um, before that. Uh, yeah. You know, William Worthington Fowler's work in 1873 uh, is just amazing. If you read that book, um, you know, Inside Life in Wall Street, you know, just having done deal after deal after deal, I'm like, wow, this is just amazing. Nothing changes. Tech changes and the people change, but the agenda and it's just, yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And and on that point, real quick, my, my, my father was was one of those guys that would have the really old manuscripts from the twenties and the thirties, oh, right. Cool. Of, of tech analysis. So like, I've got, you know, you know, sort of a, a whole bunch of really old like manuscripts oh, that, is, that are not, that's, anywhere, 
Oh wow, that's a real really cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's like, it's like JJ. I, lo- I loved reading through. Um, you know, you really got me into the history of it, JJ, and I and I loved going back and um, reading uh, Walter Deemer's old memos he had saved from the uh, the the sixties and seventies. Uh, it's just just real interesting, real intriguing. Um, Michael, uh, so so in the video, your dad was uh, talking about market cycles, and I, I know this is something uh, you're big on. Could you just speak, you know, to the audience about the importance of understanding market cycles? Yeah, and by the way, Walter Demar is actually going to be um, uh, one of my guests for my Spaces show. So it's funny you mentioned. Oh, we oh we love him, man. I, I I've had uh I've, we live very very close to him down here in Florida. I've had a lunch with him. Great guy. Yeah. So on on this point about cycles, I always I always put this tweet out that there are no gurus. There are only cycles. Because one thing that really irritates me to no end is how the media put somebody on a pedestal and makes them seem like they are the uh, Messiah for the moment. And I say for the moment purposely, because cycles are always for the moment. Um, So I I think the key thing when you think about investing is you have to recognize the environment that you're in, right? And that's sort of a discussion around cycles and cycles change. There are secular cycles, there are cyclical cycles, but you have to recognize that there are always cycles and that the future may be a continuation of the current cycle or could be the turn of a start of a new one. The problem that I see, I think, unfortunately, in today's world is somehow seemingly people think cycles no longer exist because the Federal Reserve uh, seemingly got rid of them. Uh, I find that very hard to believe, right? So if you have respect for cycles and for the fact that dynamics change, what happens from a portfolio allocation perspective is you end up not getting sucked into going to only the old winners. You start thinking differently, like we're seeing, for example, some people at the margin thinking differently about the energy sector, thinking differently about the tech sector. It's not because suddenly the tech gurus uh, are no longer have the hot hand. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the fact that the game's changed. And my only point around cycles and respecting them is that you have to recognize that things change, that it's not based on some soothsayer on the Hill's viewpoint about earnings going uh, gangbuster in a particular industry or sector that's already done well but rather that there's a natural ebb and flow that happens in life and in markets. And as long as you recognize that from a humility perspective, that's where you can really take advantage of some new opportunities. Yeah. And uh, my, my boy, uh, shout out to I Need Money, AKA Iron Lungs. He, uh, he wanted me to ask you, uh, do you have any recommended readings um, on the topic of market cycles? Ah, okay. So there's, a, there's quite a few of them. And, and my father's got, uh, used to always reference things like the Kondratiev cycle and, and other sort of kitchen cycles, sort of these, more esoteric, multi-century type of cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Gan and JJ, you can probably add to this. I think Gan's got a, several, several good pieces, several good books on it. Um, in general, most much of my work is much more around intermarket analysis within cycles, right? So oh, sort yeah. of the interplay of assets and sectors to each other, and depending upon whether you're at the extent tail end of a bull cycle or tail end of a bear cycle, what tends to sort of perform the best from relative movement, but. JJ, I don't know if you got some thoughts on that, but I think that's um, no. I am starting points. No, I will. Yeah, I will leave this up to you. As I, most of my my you know experience in that is, I've I've been a pure market maker. You know, create the market for the insiders to sell stock into. I've done a lot of reading on deals and that sort of thing, but as far as GAN and and things like that, I'm you know I I need a I need a good lesson in that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So good stuff. So you know. And, you know, now that we're in an era of very high uh, volatility, 
Michael. Um, I know you think it's very important to understand the risk on risk off um, indicators. Uh, how, how is this play? How is this playing into um, market environment or market? You know what we were just um, discussing as far as market cycles. Yeah, no. This, so this is a good question, a good good area to go to. So first of all, whenever I say risk on risk off, I'm not defining it the way traditional media defines it. It's not about direction for me. It's about conditions that favor a higher or lower volatility. So risk off to me is an environment where there's likely a tail potentially wagging, some kind of major decline where there's higher volatility in equities, risk on means lower volatility. Now, yes, usually in you know, uptrending markets, volatility tends to be low. Usually in downtrending markets, volatility tends to be high. So there is some link there, but it's not really about direction, it's about volatility dynamics. And all of the papers that I'm known for basically document leading indicators to conditions whereby those indicators flip and then at least historically on a go-forward basis, average stock market volatility will change. So if lumber is strong relative to gold, average volatility for the stock market historically tends to be lower than if it's the opposite. If utilities are outperforming the stock market, on average, higher volatility. If long-duration treasuries are outperforming intermediate, on average, higher volatility. If you're below the moving average, on average, higher volatility. Now, the key word there is on average, right? And I always make this point. I am very sincere when I say this. I do not believe anybody can predict the future mm-hmm. at all. I could not predict to you that I would be sick doing this interview with you. Uh, and that's why my voice sounds the way that it does until I'm actually in it. Right. Um, but I'm just using that as a kind of a funny example. But the, the, my point is that I think forecast for the most part is largely bullshit. If you have, I do believe, however, I can tell you the weather, right? I can tell you the conditions. I can tell you if it's raining or sunny. Now, keep in mind, if you have a mindset around, conditions, the weather, when you think about investing and trading, that doesn't mean that if it's sunny, you're not going to crash, right? Conditions dictate probabilities, probabilities dictate outcome. Mm -hmm. The problem when it comes to investing, and I see this a lot on Twitter, is that people fall for the small sample, the moment now, instead of the idea of probabilities, because everything has a probability, even if it's a very low probability, right? Even the way 2022 has played out. I would argue it's a very low probability that you'd have such an aggressive sell-off entering this year. And by the way, I'm kind of right on that because everybody seems to be flat-footed by the way suddenly everything just broke down in January, right? You have yields spiking and stocks falling very suddenly. And by the way, even worse than that is everybody got flat-footed with that happening as credit spreads have been narrow. Usually when you're in a real risk-off period, spreads widen, that hasn't happened, which would argue that this is not a risk-off period. This is a risk on period where there's a dislocation, where something unusual happened. Some people would say, well, you know, if that's the case, your, your approach, you know, didn't work now. Why would I have any, why would I care about anything you have to say? Because it's not about the small sample. It's about the cycles, mm-hmm. it's about prolonged periods of time, right? So my old rant here about this point is that I wish people would stop getting sucked into these, these forecasts, these targets, these narratives, and simply focus on what's observable. Because I think if you do that, you're going to be much safer longer term, you know, in terms of trying to avoid the really nasty losses wherever they occur. Yeah. Amen. And I find that when people get into that sort of prediction forecasting method, they seem to like, they have trouble letting go of it. In, yes. In, you know, they'll see the evidence to the contrary, but they're so attached to it because they want to be right. You know, and I mean, as a trader, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm used to being wrong. 
<laughs> right? It's like, I'm wrong. Okay, no big deal, right? But when you get into that, it, it just biases people and they just get hung up on it. It's, it's amazing to watch that psychology. No, and it's even worse than that because it, it results actually, I would argue, in in many ways, the worst of humanity because it ends up being a shout fest and insulting, you know, yeah, whatever the counter exactly. And it's very silly because exactly. I, 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 keep, I keep going back to this point. It's like, let's all agree at the start of every conversation, nobody can fucking predict anything about tomorrow. Exactly. Let's just agree with that. If that's the case, I don't care how convinced you are. It's yeah. irrelevant. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we all, I always use this line, right? No amount of intelligence increases the clarity of one's crystal ball. It's just fact, right? Plenty of smart people do dumb things about the yeah. future. Now, having said that, right now, having said that, there's, there's a nuance here, right? Which is that I, I rant against forecasting and prediction, but the reality is we all have to predict. Mm-hmm. Every action is a prediction, right? So you set your alarm at night, right? Before you sleep. Every time you set your alarm, you're making two predictions. One, that you're going to be alive. <laughs> Very true. Right? Because otherwise, why would you set the alarm? You're going to be dead anyway, right? Either that or, uh, and or, <laughs> and or, uh, you still have your job. Otherwise, why would you wake up and sleep in? Right. So, so my point is that, don't get me wrong, we all have to make predictions and forecasts. There are some domains where there's a, a clearer link between action and a future result. When it comes to investing in a complex, chaotic system, you don't know how much of it's luck. You don't know how much of it's skill. You don't know how much of it's randomness. So I always advocate, be humble, get out of your echo chambers, listen to different ideas, because your conviction on your idea, which, by the way, the algorithms are just enforcing on you, because the way that Twitter and all these other platforms increase engagement is throwing at you things you already agree with. Yeah. The best thing to do is to try to force yourself out of that, because that's the only way you can properly wait in a portfolio and take the right risk. Yeah. Wow. A lot, no, a lot, a lot of good stuff. A lot of things, uh, a lot of follow ups I even have. And it, it makes me think of. Um, you know, uh, stuff Talib writes about Daniel Kahneman, right? It, it, I, I think there's plenty of studies to, to show that we can't predict the future or how bad human beings are at, are at yep. it. Um, and then just coming from that acceptance standpoint. And, and I believe that's, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but I believe that's what you have more of an issue with the crypto community, maybe not necessarily blockchain or Bitcoin itself. Am I correct in that, that assessment? Yeah, look, look, I, let me, let me, let me very clear. So a lot of people seem to think I'm I'm anti-Bitcoin, but they're missing the point. First of all, Toroso, the advisor that I'm under, we run the biggest blockchain ETF in the world. BLOK is our fund, mm-hmm. right? So, so my, my critique around cryptocurrency isn't around the technology, right? It's around the narratives. Just like my critique around Tesla is the narratives. It goes back to this idea that the future is noble. How many times did you see people beat their chest and show you the stock to flow model? This is exactly what Bitcoin is going to do. Look at every single having, look at every single time. Newsflash, models fail, right? I mean, it, it, my, my, my critique around it is more around this notion that the future is guaranteed to be Bitcoin. Let me tell you something. The future was guaranteed that Ask Jeeves would be the next Google. Mm, oh, yeah. Or that Prodigy would be the next AOL. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so my, my entire point with that is, it's really about countering the conviction, the overconfidence. Now, on the cryptocurrency side, real quick on that. I don't know. I Look, I understand the, 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 the issue, right, in terms of this is our way of getting out of the system. Right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this is sticking it to the institutions which have screwed a lot of people. And there's unequivocally an argument to be made about uh, for cryptocurrencies, especially when it comes to emerging economies where there's no banks, there's no real sort of way of, of storing capital. So I understand all that, right? 
My problem, though, goes back to exactly what you referenced when it comes to Daniel Kahneman. People are notoriously bad at how long something will take to occur and how much it costs. Right? It's no different than construction. Right? Any estimate that a contractor gives you, so this is any, anybody that's done any kind of work on their own, you know that you got to probably double the price the contractor's estimated and double the time at a minimum, at a minimum. So the problem I see in the space is that aside from the, the fact that there's this very vitriolic sentiment, which is really uncalled for because at the end of the day, you would think that if you want massive adoption, you'd want actually to bring people in, not turn them off, right, with these narratives. It's probably going to take longer than people think. People talk like this is going to happen tomorrow. Like, we're so early, we're so early. I mean, I'm pretty sure Matt Damon, I'm pretty sure it's like these, these arguments are nonsense. This Every single major actor, every single major athlete's talking about this. What are you talking about? It's so early. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Damon on the commercial. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've seen a lot of people are giving flack. And, and I think even yourself uh, to the uh, the athletes uh, getting paid in the BTC and they've been showing what they what it's the contract is worth now. Um, and, and my problem with that is not is not the idea of getting paid. And my problem with that is there are a lot of people that see that that look up to these people. Sure. Yeah. And, they, they you know, it's like, yeah, sure. You know what? Those athletes, those, those, those actors, they can withstand a 50% drawdown like we saw the last two and a half, three months. Okay, but if you're going to take your, your, your paycheck in, in, in Bitcoin and you don't have big wealth and you've got to pay that rent, yeah. well, what, are you going to tell your landlord, oh, I can't pay this month because my, my, my income got cut in half when I got paid? It's, it's, the whole notion is, is absurd. And I think this is really at the core of my issue with these narratives. Shit's complicated. <laughs> Like, I mean, this is it's really something like this stuff, yeah. like real world, like people use, make these use case arguments. It's so much harder than, than, than Bitcoin, Bitcoin solves this. There's so much more complexity, so many more layers. And my only point here is recognize that, have humility. And all that means is wait less, recognize risk, recognize time, and don't piss off every single other person because you think your way is the only way the future will play out. Yeah, yeah. And so, Michael, and, and so beyond uh, Bitcoin, do, do you see blockchain as, you know, having use cases being maybe put, uh, potentially a disruptive uh, technology? Listen, there's there's no question. Right. And I've never I've never countered the opposite. My, but I do believe, though, that the way that people frame the use cases is sure. a bit extreme. Right. It's like, you know, they're, they're making it seem like uh, blockchain is going to solve um, uh, tracking of artwork or whatever. It be. Well, OK. Maybe, but then some people don't want to be on the blockchain because they want the privacy because we all know blockchain is a public ledger, right? So, you know, there's a lot of us, if you've done any kind of work in, in, in the scientific field, you know, there's this, this um, way of thinking about it in terms of something being a joint hypothesis. Mm-hmm. In other words, for one hypothesis to hold true, another hypothesis also has to hold true. Well, now it's actually more than two hypotheses, hypotheses, it's multiple hypotheses, right? To get to this idea that Bitcoin solves every single issue. It's, again, I go back to it's much more complicated. I am a fan of the idea that, yes, a portion of portfolio, it makes sense to have exposure to every asset, including Bitcoin, everything, right? Because a true, true diversification means more than just stocks, right? The key is always the weighting of it. My, my contention is the way that people talk about it and the way these influencers hit on this so aggressively, it gives unbeknownst to, and, and maybe uh, uh, without them intending to, it makes people who don't understand markets massively right. overweight a very risky asset sure sure makes yeah makes ton of sense um michael you know go, so going to this point with like social media the, these influencers 
uh, a lot of people not understanding what they're getting into. Uh, for someone like yourself, uh, other portfolio managers, the sharp money, do you think this creates a bigger edge for you guys? It's interesting, right? Because on one, on one hand, you could argue that it's more obvious now than ever before to see the extremes, right? And you know, that's where contrarianism kind of kicks in. Even just the other day, uh, you know, talk about that day, which, you know, um, where the Dow reversed, you know, down a thousand points and then closed positive, right? Which was yesterday as of this recording, but I'm saying that day because I don't know what this airs. So I saw, first of all, the bearish death was unbelievable on Twitter. And I kept on putting out these tweets that showed that we've been in a breath bear market since February. So every storm is not just a function of the magnitude of the storm, but how long the storm has been ongoing. I would argue, oddly enough, that We've been in a bear market for almost a year, just not in the headline averages. Okay. Now, talk about sentiment. The number of likes and retweets I would get on that contrarian message, which is just based on facts and data, it was much lower than something that was arguably much more bearish. Hmm. So, so to your point on the idea of an edge, I don't know if you necessarily create sort of a, a rules-based approach based on that. I know some hedge funds, for example, will try to use sentiment with Reddit and Twitter to kind of create buy and sell signals. I think it's a little hard to do that because the, the sample size, no matter what, is still too small to know if that's really valid. Sure. But I do think you can see the extremes much more visibly. And for those that want to be more discretionary, it can make sense to, to pay attention mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so your, your findings on the relationship between gold and lumber, and I know you've touched on it a little bit, but you know, for, for the listeners and for the people who are not uh, familiar with it, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a little curious to how, how did you stumbled, uh, uh, you know, upon this relationship? So the initial idea was really to be more on copper, but it became clear that, you know, when you're in a house that housing is the key to everything, right? I mean, most people's wealth is in their homes. We are fortunate enough to be stock investors, but the reality is most people, their asset is their house. So mm-hmm. then you start going down the rabbit hole. Okay. Well, what goes into, into homes? Sure. Copper does, but lumber is, the biggest uh, component to building U.S. homes. And going further than that, lumber is unique among all commodities in that it's one of the least actively traded. So volume contract, right, when it comes to lumber futures is very low. So, which makes it kind of interesting because that would argue that most of the trades when it comes to lumber futures are more from hedgers that actually know what the hell is going on in lumber as opposed to speculators. Mm, okay. Right? So there's, there's more signal, I would argue, there than that's sort of the noise of speculation. We can argue about whether that's still the case, given the way lumber has kind of surged, but volume is still low. So, okay, so then we also know from other studies outside of the lumber to gold study that lumber correlates very quickly to housing starts data. So the moment, the moment housing starts come out hotter than expected or cooler than expected, lumber futures react instantaneously. So there's a, you can't really see real-time housing starts data, but the closest you can get is the price of lumber. Is, is my point, right? Yeah. So if you go with that and you go with the fact that it takes time to build a home, right, then lumber actually has an early warning sign to risk sentiment, credit creation, growth, inflation. Okay, now what about gold? Why, why, why is gold a part of that mix? First of all, lumber by itself is predictive, meaning even if you just did a simple moving average on lumber, the trend of lumber also tells you about volatility and equities with a delay, right? So if lumber itself is trending up, volatility stocks tend to be lower. But when you compare it against gold, it gets to be even more interesting because whereas lumber, I would argue, is the most cyclical commodity because housing is highly cyclical, gold is the most non-cyclical. I'm using the term non-cyclical purposely. Gold doesn't behave based on growth, doesn't behave based on attraction. It does, however, behave based on volatility and equities. 
So you compare lumber to gold, it actually tells you a lot about risk. And it's not my opinion. It's like some people on Twitter, they say, oh, you know, this magic ratio. It's not a magic ratio. It's not some random correlation. It's not my opinion. You can look at every single major crash correction bear market. I, can, I, I, had, a, I had a series of tweets proving that. Lumber to gold tends to warn you in advance of major declines. Now, here's the rub with that. Just because lumber to gold is weak doesn't mean you're going to have a massive decline in equities. He said when you have a massive decline in equities, lumber to gold tends to already be weak. Right? And that's an important distinction because I'm not suggesting that every time lumber to gold collapses, you should necessarily go short or get the hell out of markets. But in the event that it's anticipating potentially some decline that is telling you the conditions and the outcome occurs, you want to be ahead of that. Right? You want to lower your beta. You want to take on more treasury, more diversification in a portfolio, even though you might be wrong nine out of 10 times, it's that 10th time that saves you. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Michael, so how, how are we looking uh, lumber to gold ratio currently uh, early 2022? Yeah. And, and this kind of goes back to this point that, you know, it can be sunny and it can still, you know, uh, you can still be in what looks like a risk off, although I would argue this is not really a risk off in a classic sense. Lumber to gold, similar to what happened mid last year or prior to June of last year, it went vertical. Only recently, as we're talking about this uh, third, uh, third week of January, um, or fourth week of January, is this starting to break down? So only now lumber seems to be responding, uh, anticipating some kind of a slowdown in housing. Now we'll see if it sticks. I mean, the move was so extreme. A lot of the move higher in lumber was really around a kickoff in increased tariffs that the Biden administration put on Canadian imports of lumber. Uh, but a lot of it's also still obviously because of there's, there's still residual housing strength, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, if that were to turn around aggressively and utilities keep on outperforming and the yield curve reflattens and you have yield curves uh, and you have credit spreads widen, which I go back to is really critical because that's where risk off really lives. It's actually in the bond market, not in stocks. If that confluence occurs, that to me seems like a very strong risk off pulse, which means we're not done with what we've seen so far this year. I don't think that's going to be the case. Again, without having a relief rally first, because again, going back to this point that we've been in this breadth of bear market since February. But you know, when these indicators flash, it just means be careful. Right? That, that's all it means. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Michael, you, you really had me thinking, man, um, you know, with the, the between, uh, you know, shifting gears to like, I guess kind of gold and, and BTC, uh, the store of value concept that there's there's no store there's no such thing as a store of value you know there's just cycles um so is the store of value this is this a just a false concept or is this you know or is btc is in a store of value or or not yet it's funny because when people say it's an emerging store of value my response is what the hell does that even mean <laughs> that's also a prediction sure it's also a prediction right i'm you're right but it's a prediction nobody can forecast it is right so okay so so hold on so First of all, let's let's go back to store value because now even you know, even the media outlets are on the store value narrative, which I've been hammering for the last like six months because it's, it's, it's a it makes absolutely no sense. A store value at its core is ultimately about uh, having a predictable value. Predictable is the key word there, okay, sure. and one that keeps up with your own personal rate of inflation, which is another nuance because inflation rates for people on the east coast are different than in the middle of the country versus the west coast, right? So. If you're going to put your money in something and you use the term store value, there's an implication there that you can put 100% of your assets in that 
knowing that it's going to keep up with the rate of your personal inflation, that your purchasing power will not change no matter what time frame you're looking at, short or long. End of story, right? Now, this is why I keep going back to the store of value cannot have tails in the distribution, cannot have extremes. Mm -hmm. So the moment that you have any kind of a potential black swan, any kind of a big drawdown, I don't care how many longer term charts you show on Bitcoin. There have been 50% plus declines in Bitcoin. You can't simply say zoom out because if you zoom out, <laughs> the characteristic of an investment is that it has, yeah. Yeah. Right? It, it has risk. A story of value cannot have risk. This is my point, right? And that goes back to, it's not just semantics. My war on the terminology has again to do with weighting. A store of value, the way it's framed is something that you should have 100% of your liquid net worth in. The problem with that is what happens when the inevitable black swans of real life happen, where suddenly you have to uh, you're, you're still, you, you have to give, you, you're in the hospital for something and you don't even have insurance, let's say, hypothetically, right? Mm. And there's some massive medical bill you got to deal with. And you got 100% of your money in Bitcoin. Okay, you might be fine, but what if it happened three months ago? And now you got to pay that bill today, right? This is my problem. It, it goes back to the, these words matter because the words frame how much risk to take. Sure. So an investment mm -hmm. has tails. A store value does not ha have tails. A hedge is meant to be a way of countering the tails. But the more that people just conflate these different terms, the more it does a lot of disservice to the newbie investors who don't really understand these nuances that hear store value and say, let me put my entire paycheck that I'm going to yeah. pay rent in into these areas, which can go down 50% in a week. The other thing too is I noticed that, you know, my whole job, my career was to bring liquidity people don't really think about liquidity. Yep. I mean, Bitcoin, I mean, I, I've been watching it. I haven't even traded it. I just watched the thing and I've got levels using market profile and TPO charts. But that thing swings. I mean, you go and show some of those levels size and they'll just, you know, they'll fall apart like a cheap suit. You know, so if you go and put size into that market, like, you know, I, I mean, you're a portfolio manager. So, you know, it must be, it must be hell trying to even like, put on size in this market with these huge ranges because if you look at you know like i look at apple and less than one percent of the float trades so i mean if somebody came along and tried to sell 100 million shares of apple in a day dear god it would be bid off it would be bid off right it would be bid off you know and nobody even thinks about that now because we're in such a you know marked up environment no know? and i'll take it even a step further right because the and this is where this really gets to be really nasty to think through right you talk about liquidity. Okay. So the problem with cryptocurrencies is goes back to narratives over confidence and every single major uh, uh, highly extreme leveraged environment is, is because of overconfidence, right? Belief that the future plays out the way it is. I always make that point that the problem is not cryptocurrencies. The problem is overconfidence. Overconfidence leads to leverage. Leverage leads to crashes. Every single crash is preceded by extreme leverage and not enough liquidity than during the deleverage. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's go with that. What's the problem then with cryptocurrencies under this idea that it becomes an emergent store of value? Well, it's a 24 seven globally traded asset where you don't have uniform regulation around how much you can leverage. Exactly. So you have, you can, there are maximums in terms of how much you can leverage for stocks in the US. There are maximums mm -hmm. for how much you can leverage in Europe. You, there, you cannot, you know, if I were to look up, go 100x Bitcoin, 100x uh, Cardano, 100x Dogecoin, I may not be able to find it in the US. I can probably find it in Cyprus. 
can yeah. probably find it any other place in the world because there's no uniform regulatory body that says you cannot leverage this 100x. So let's think about that now, right? Because you're going to always have the marginal buyer being overconfident when price is going up and then saying, you know what, screw it. Let me go 100x. Let me go as levered as I can. Well, if multiple people, players do that, price is set by the marginal demand. The marginal demand then, in that case, every marginal dollar is margin, yep. which means you constantly have these crashes. So how can it be a store of value if you can leverage that store of value and then have a margin call? Exactly. The entire thinking doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great, great, great food for thought for the listeners. Uh, Michael, you, you recently made a statement about uh, markets uh, getting biblical. Um, I, don't, I don't know how tongue in cheek that was, but could, could you speak to that uh, that statement? Yeah, no, and uh, it's funny. You know, it's like you always want to find those terms that people uh, will pay attention to, but I do believe that. So, first of all, I go back to nobody can predict the future. The the closest thing you can count on, and it goes back to cycles, is mean aversion. Even when it comes to liquidity, JJ, right? It's like you have those mm-hmm. periods where you have high liquidity and low liquidity. There's, there's yep. always some average, but there's always swings around the average. Exactly. So, okay. So mean aversion is, is not a new concept, right? It's, it's like, I always go back. It's a concept that's as old as the Bible itself, right? He who is first shall be last hmm. and last first. What is that? That's of course, that's mean aversion because the only way you have mean aversion is to go past the mean. Yeah. By it. the way, Right, which is a nuance, right? Exactly. So, so which we, we, we can even play with that when it comes to the inflation discussion. Okay, so, and, and this is also well-documented in markets, right? So there's something known as the Morningstar curse, right? So if you were to look at the five-star Morningstar funds over the last three years, they end up being one or two stars in the next three years, mm. right? There's always mean aversion. There's always cycles in that. Exactly. Okay. So my whole point in arguing for this mean aversion or using that terminology when it comes to markets is, I think there is, I think we're at a potentially a turning point in the cycle. I could be wrong because there's enough evidence there would suggest that where there's several mean reversions taking place. Growth to value is one, away from tech into energy, right? Which is value, into financials, which is value. Away from US into emerging markets. I keep joking about Brazil, okay? I mean, Brazil is rocketing this year, right? And I, it's, it's so funny to me that uh, you know that you're probably at an inflection point when there are Twitter accounts that are made to just make fun of how many people lose money in Brazil. Right. And there are many of those on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have so much engagement. It's like, it's like, it shows you the sentiment. It goes back to your prior point that you could see the sentiment yeah. when it even gets to be a joke about how much you lose. Right. Okay. So when I say biblical, what I'm arguing is that I think there's a lot of big asset allocation shifts and that the cycle is changing. There's a whole new, a uh, group of secular leaders that will come out of what what seems to be a change in monetary policy, the way that that markets are operating. The problem, of course, there is that whenever you say mean reversion, you have to say, well, where's the mean? Right. So, right, the mean's always changing. Also, the target is also changing. So, you know, it's like I'm not necessarily arguing that suddenly energy is going to have the same kind of performance the next ten years as tech did the last ten. Because you don't know where that mean reversion, where that relationship really should be. But you can observe that tech is so massively stretched relative to everything else. You can see that based on the top uh, five or top 10 S&P names being mainly tech. right? You can observe that there's enough extreme behavior there that there should be mean reversion in those areas which are lower weighted in the indices and are probably underinvested. And they're underinvested. Why? Because all the attention was on tech. All the attention was on the U.S. So that's really what I'm talking about when I say biblical, that there's 
there's a big shift in flows, I think, happening now. And the problem, unfortunately, is that most investors only realize that two to three years after the cycle is already taking place. I always keep making this point that the problem with momentum is that it needs to already be taking place for there to be momentum. So it's a leap of faith to some extent at the turns, but that's that's where the, the biggest returns tend to be made. Yeah. Yeah, very, very good points. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people and, you know, you and JJ have been in the markets way longer than myself. And, and I'm seeing a lot of people trying to draw comparisons to maybe previous markets that we've been in. Do you, do you see comparisons to previous times or you think this is fairly unique time we're in? So uh, to be clear, I think it's important to to realize that, again, I go back to nobody can predict the future, but keep in mind whenever you think about prior cycles when it comes to sector movement, the question you always have to ask is what's the end? what's the sample size, right? So in terms of, you know, how do, does this look similar? To, it's like, how many times have you seen this indicator flashed, you know, uh, a crash warning at two other times in history and you had a big crash afterwards? Okay, well, is that enough of a sample size to really know if there's merit there, right? So in the case of my papers, for example, the research, those risk on risk off indicators, the utilities one goes back to the late 1920s. Lumber to gold goes back to 1975. The treasuries one goes back to the 1960s. By the way, that may not be a long enough sample size either. But at least you need to have some data to have some confidence in that. So my only point in saying all that is, I don't know if you can really compare this to other prior cycles. Yeah, you could say, well, there's some similarities to the tech wreck, right? Because you know, the tech bubble burst, energy-led emerging markets were the cycle leader from then until 2007. Maybe there's some similarities there, but I do believe every cycle has its own unique characteristics. The key thing is, if the environment's changed, all that means is you have to consider changing your way of thinking about your portfolio. Yep, absolutely. Michael, I've been enjoying this conversation, man. It's great stuff. I got some rapid fire questions for you and then I'll get you going on your way, all right? Yep, please. All right, um, traders that you look up to or you have looked up to. Mm. So I, I used to spend a lot of time reading all the, the Schwager books, the Market Wizards huh? uh, type books. Um, I, it's hard to kind of go to somebody that I can think of off the top of my head, but I would go back to what you referenced earlier, reminiscence of a, of a stock trader with Lefebvre, right? It was uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I think the, the name there. I think, you know, because uh, as I recall, a lot of that was around uh, not just big gains, but big losses. Yeah. And I think it's good to look up to those who also go through periods of drawdowns uh, instead of those that just go through the, through the wins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we shout out to Jack Schwager and the market. I love that series. We yeah. had him on as well. But uh, you know, speaking of losses, uh, next question: uh, toughest losses that you, uh, toughest loss you've had throughout your career. Mm-hmm. So I've used this one before. So um, you remember the uh, XIV ETF or ETN? I should say. Yeah, it was really ET, ETF, but that was a short VIX uh, ETF. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So this goes back to. You can, you can be, you know, just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't. So I had exposure to XIV, the short VIX futures ETF, on what was then uh, termed Volmageddon, which is when the VIX spiked and these VIX futures ETNs and ETFs suffered like an 80% loss. One of the ETNs actually went, went under. I actually wear that kind of proudly because, you know, one, sizing it, going back to that, is always the critical point, right? You always have to size to the point where, you're comfortable losing the investment entirely. And it also shows the dangers of shorting volatility, right? Even though your signal might be right or wrong more often than not, it's that one time that can define your performance for a moment in time. So I myself personally went through that, which is kind of funny because I'm known as this risk on risk off thinker and portfolio manager. 
And I was risk on an, a nasty risk off period for a short vol strategy. Sizing matters more than what you're investing in. All right, let's go back to that point, right? What you own matters a lot less than how much you own of it. So yes, it was painful, but thankfully I didn't own a big portion of it. Yeah, yeah, very good. Did, did any time they like mess your head up a little bit? Did you get in inside your head? Was it tough to get out? Any any moments like that or? Yeah, I think, listen, I think that's natural. And I think, yeah. um, I, I think a lot of people, they tend to, they tend to get stuck in their own head and they start doubting themselves. The problem is that people tend to, de-risk when they're going through some kind of a, a period where they're off cycle. And the problem with that is that suddenly you can resync, but now you're playing with less capital than you did before. And you're more shy in terms of taking risks. So you never quite fully come back. You kind of degross at the wrong time. You yeah. Kind of hedge your language, right? So, yeah, I think that's natural, but I think, you know, as long as you recognize that it's not about the single rule of the dive or multiple, the key thing is to just stay in the game. Just stay in the game. I love it. Um, Michael, has your investment style or process, uh, can you speak to maybe how it's changed over the years? So I'm very proud of the fact that not much has changed because I think if you try to chase optimization, you get in trouble. Mm. Okay. So every single strategy, including buy and hold, by the way, has cycles again, where it doesn't work. So I have a risk on risk off approach, the three funds you see in the background here. These are all my funds. They're all variations of risk on, risk off, either through my mutual fund, my Roro ETF, or the JoJo bond, junk on, junk off fund. And there are plenty of times where, in quotes, they don't, quote, unquote, work, right? So last year, for example, the ATAC rotation mutual fund was down 10%. Risk on, risk off in a pure risk on world where it's the wrong type of risk on, just the S&P being the only game in town last year. So on the one hand, you say to yourself, well, why don't you change your strategy? Well, because in 2020, that mutual fund was up 72% because I had risk on risk off. Right. So my point is that you have to be careful with the idea of changing an approach because sometimes the only way out of a cycle that doesn't favor your approach is to keep doing what you're doing. The only way out, you know, it's kind of like an old saying, when you're going through hell, keep going. Right. The problem is if you start changing your approach, as long as it's tested and you have real merit for why you're following it. The problem is that the moment you change it, because seemingly the cycle is not in your favor, the cycle starts to change back to what it was before. So I think consistency is really important. That's not to say be dogmatic, but it's to say that you have to be aware that you're not going to be right all the time. As long as you have something you can prove historically, you're probably better off not trying to change too much. Yeah. I like that. Uh, that's, that, that's something I'm definitely going to, I'm going to sit on what you said, uh, chasing optimization. I think that's something actually I needed to hear right now. That's some good stuff. Um, you know, uh, bringing it back to your Twitter account, large following, but you follow one account and it's uh, how you dish. Uh, what's up with that? I found that very interesting. Yeah. So I, uh, so in addition to being a portfolio manager, I also am a songwriter, but also developed this app that is now in its third iteration. But uh, the idea was basically uh, to connect foodies to each other through food, which is kind of a strange concept, but it's also the most obvious one. So you know, it's more of a, a passion project for me. It's not really uh, a major focus just yet. I think it's I think it's good to to always have hobbies and have different interests, right? I think creativity in markets is more than just sort of what stock looks interesting, but having multiple outlets because it does just develop your brain to think differently. Whether it's my songwriting or or developing an app, I think it's good to yes, not just be focused on your domain, but have interest in other areas because. If you really want to be in something long enough, you also need breaks from that thing. You need something to distract you, right? And 
uh, I think, you know, the more you think about hobbies and things that you like to do that are outside of markets, the more likely you're going to be better at markets. Love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's cool, man. I didn't know, I didn't know that was, uh, your your startup man that's awesome man good luck with all that man that's awesome um and all right last one uh last thing we'll go on uh, any thoughts on a central bank digital currency listen i'm sure it's coming i mean you know why not i mean if there's one thing we know the government wants to have more ability to track things i mean yeah. that's the world that we're <laughs> in so it wouldn't surprise me now <clears throat> excuse me whether or not there will be you know uh, widespread adoption is a whole different question right because uh, you're kind of talking to two different audiences. First of all, there is something to the dollar because some people really don't want to be tracked. I mean, it's like even this narrative, going back to narratives around cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, some people really just don't want to be tracked. They don't want to be on a public ledger that anybody can see their transaction. They want that privacy in a world where everything is so visible. Dollars are one of the actual few things that you can actually transact and maybe have some, some degree of anonymity. So I'm sure that it's coming. I'm sure the central banks will try. I'm just not so clear that it's going to be as widely adopted as their models would hope. Yep. All right. And that's going to conclude today's episode of Confession of, of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join JJ, myself, and a supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Michael, uh, tell the people where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So obviously on Twitter, at Lead Lagerport and leadlagreport.com. The funds through Toroso are available at ATAC, A-T-A-C, funds.com. I kind of feel like I need to hear JJ uh, use the uh, the woo line from Ric Flair to close off the, uh, the episode. <laughs> can you give me a woo? Come on. I can definitely woo! There you go. <laughs> woo! Well, thank yeah, you so fun. much. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your insight and wisdom. It's great to have portfolio managers on the show because, you know, our our you know, our listeners really, they really, they need to know how the, the donut is made, you know, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the invite, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, guys, go follow him. Guy's a great thinker. Really appreciate you, Michael. Hey, Michael, and also too, man, if the listeners, if they want to sign up for the lead lag report, maybe just give them a little insights what they get with that. Yeah, so it's got the, the risk signals that are directly from those five different research studies that I'm known for, as well as a global view, leaders, laggards, macro, high yield ideas. It's sort of a, uh, a way of accessing intermarket analysis beyond the funds if you're into sort of this way of thinking. Look, at the end of the day, all I do is give voice to math. And hopefully I do it in an entertaining way because you know numbers by themselves are boring, but um, all I'm doing is trying to give, give voice to these relationships. And there will be times that are gonna be right, times that are gonna be wrong, but the main focus for me is always around risk management. And uh, going back to cycles, every age of turbulence needs an age of moderation before it. Mm. So I would argue that we're probably entering a cycle where things are going to be more volatile. That doesn't mean necessarily a bear market. It just means you better you know, recognize that uh, it's going to get uh, more challenging and more tactical opportunities will be there for the taking. All right. Excellent, guys. Go sign up. Michael's a good guy. Michael, appreciate you, man. So for Michael Gayed, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. So.